0: Thank you, Gaylene, for the scripture reading. My box says it's on. Can you hear me? I will test. Well, ah, you can hear me now because I can hear myself. All right, good morning. It's an honor to be invited to speak to you. I want to thank Trevor Douglas, my son Ben, and my wife Irene for their helpful ideas and suggestions on my message. Also, I appreciate Pastor Glenn taking time to review the message with me yesterday and give me some very helpful advice. And I also very much appreciate those who have been praying for me. As I prepare and this morning as, as I present what God has given me. Let's just take a moment to pray, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are victorious. And so I pray that you will open our ears to hear your message to us today. Give us hearts to obey. Remind us of the great salvation that your son Jesus has provided for us. And may we gratefully worship you with our lives that show uh, the power that you have had to change us and we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So I've been asked to speak on Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 17 and that's what I will attempt to do but I will have some difficulty ending with verse 17 as you'll see at the end of my message. For those of you who are interested in translations most of the verses I use will be taken from the New King James Version but I use other translations as well. This section of verses just read for us by Galene begins with the word finally. Paul is introducing the final topic in his letter to the Christians in Ephesus and that topic is spiritual warfare. To cover this topic in in depth would require a whole series of messages so we will only cover a few basic truths this morning. Then after saying finally he addresses my brethren a reminder that as believers in Jesus Christ We are adopted into the family of God, and we are brothers and sisters in that spiritual family. While we each will have our own individual spiritual battles, we also need to support one another in this battle. And life is a battle. It can be a struggle just to succeed physically in life. It is even more important to win in the spiritual battle. Sadly, many people in this world are not aware that there is a spiritual battle at all and so they are easily victimized by Satan. Christians should know that we're in a great spiritual struggle. This is seen from the first pages of the Bible in Genesis 3, where Satan, Satan persuades Adam and Eve to disobey God, and God predicts that the seed of the woman, a predictive reference to Jesus, will crush Satan's head. Almost 2,000 years ago, the church in Ephesus was in a spiritual war, and today we are in that same spiritual war. God made us as human beings with three parts, a body, a soul, and a spirit. And this is easily seen in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So spiritual forces cannot be seen by our physical eyes, but they affect the physical world. And the Bible tells us that what we do in the physical world also affects the spiritual dimension. If we do not recognize that there is a spiritual battle going on, we will always be looking for a physical solution to our problems and will never resolve spiritual issues. It's a little bit like looking for your lost sweater in the closet when you left it in the bathroom. So long as you keep looking in the closet, you will never find that sweater. So we must recognize that this is a spiritual war. This is not a friendly competition or rivalry like a sports contest. It's not just a struggle for power and control like a political campaign. But the eternal destiny of all people is at stake. Once we are a child of God, our eternal destiny is secure. But the quality of our current life, our impact on others, and our future rebukes or rewards from the Lord hang in the balance. And this spiritual battle affects all of us, young and old. You are not exempt until you're 12 or 15 or 21, nor do we get to retire from this battle at age 65. The battle rages for each of us from conception to physical death. Little children can face spiritual attacks. I hope you won't mind a personal story. When I was about five years old, I had a dream. We were living in Greenville, South Carolina at the time, and in my dream, I was in my home, and I saw a dangerous wolf come down the street to our house. The wolf turned onto our sidewalk and walked up to our front door. I was exceedingly frightened and did not want the wolf to see me as I watched out our living room window. So I crawled away from the window, hid behind the sofa, and wondered what terrible thing would happen next. At this point in the dream, I woke up feeling very frightened. Remember, I'm five years old. Over the next year or two, I had this same dream several more times, and it was a bad experience each time. We lived in Greenville for only one year, and during that year, I became a Christian. After being scared by this dream several times, I decided to pray and ask God to take that dream away. I prayed, oh, and I also asked him not only to take it away, but to never let it come back again. I prayed, and God answered. And I never had that dream again. That was a great relief to me and an evidence that God is powerful and answers prayer. Years later, when I knew a great deal more spiritual truth, I realized that this dream had likely been a spiritual attack against me. In spite of my ignorance, I had done the right thing by turning to God for help. I should have also told my parents about this dream and they could have prayed on my behalf. So parents, be alert to the possibility of spiritual attacks against your children. I've been told by others who are very involved, much more than I, in spiritual warfare that recurring dreams are usually significant in some way. Young or old, we can face spiritual attacks. So how can we win in spiritual warfare? That's the question we want to answer this morning. Let's look at what this passage in Ephesians tells us. First of all, we must be strong in the Lord. Verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. I believe this is the key command in this passage. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Find your strength in the Lord, because we can win in spiritual warfare only through God and his power. Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. And this should be obviously true in the case of spiritual warfare. After his resurrection Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus now has all authority, not some authority or even a lot of authority, but all authority in heaven and on earth. So we are under his authority and if we are obeying his commands we can be strong. This strength is not about muscles, but about mindset. We do not need to be timid or fearful, for Jesus has all authority. Jesus is the rightful and true ruler of this world, and we should be bold about proclaiming this. And let's also remember the power of his might. Remember back to the first couple messages we had in our series in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 19-21, Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians was that was that they would know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come. God's power raised Jesus from the dead, and his power will someday raise every human being from the dead. That power is far greater than our feeble strength and far beyond the powers of evil spirits. If we know God and are submitted to his authority, we do not need to fear our spiritual enemies. Notice in those verses I read in Ephesians, there was the phrase, heavenly places. It is used five times in the book of Ephesians. And if I had more time, we'd read each verse. Um, but you can see the references on the screen and take a note of them and look them up later yourselves. We should realize that significant things happen in heavenly places and we would have no knowledge of them unless God tells us. The book of Job gives us some insight into this issue. God's power accomplishes what he wills, both on earth and in heaven, and because of his power, we can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. However, the second thing to know is that we must be prepared for attacks and we see this both in verse 11 and 13. Verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. I see this verse. The first is that our protection is the armor of God. Attacks are coming so God has provided armor for our protection. But armor that is hanging in a closet does not protect a warrior. So we are commanded to put on that armor, and the verse is specific that we need to put on the whole armor of God. This must be a very important instruction because God has Paul repeat it again in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. War requires discipline and great effort. Partial effort with partial armor is inadequate for the task. We will look at the parts of this armor in a few minutes, but remember that we need the whole armor. Another passage that talks about our weapons for spiritual warfare is 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So our protection is the armor of God. Secondly, I see our posture, which is standing. In both verses 11 and 13, we are told to stand, and we are to withstand the attacks that come against us. And again in verse 14, we are told to stand. Obviously, when it's mentioned three times, it must be important, and it took me a while to figure out why it was important. Standing is a posture from which you can quickly act and fight. In contrast, kneeling is the posture of surrender and submission. But we are not to give in or give up. If you are lying on your back, you're either resting or you have been overpowered. Now is not the time for resting, and with God's help, we should not be overpowered. But we need to stand in spite of blows that could knock us down. It's important to realize that our posture and our reaction to temptation needs to vary according to the source of the temptation. The Bible tells us we have three sources of temptation, the world, the flesh, and the devil. When I say the world, I am referring to this present world system corrupted by the sinfulness of humanity, and not the global earth that spins on its axis and upon which we're standing. Our reaction to temptations must vary according to the type of temptation. In this passage, the enemy that's being discussed is only the devil, and we are told to stand against him. Let's consider briefly how we should respond to each source of temptation. So source is the world? 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And 2 Corinthians 6.17 says, Do not touch what is unclean. Those are appropriate responses for temptations that come from the world. But then there are temptations from the flesh, our own bodies, and the sinful natures that come with them. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. To these fleshly temptations is to flee them and then finally we get temptations from the devil and that's what this passage is talking about another passage that also mentions it is 1st Peter 5 8 and 9 which says be sober be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour him so do not mix things up and flee from Satan Or try to resist the lusts of your own body while staying close to the thing that tempts you. Get away from, run from the temptation to your flesh, but resist the devil. And standing is the posture of resistance. Finally, in verse 11, I see our problem. The problem of deception. There's one word in the verse that hints at our problem. We are told to stand against the wiles of the devil. Or other translations use the word schemes for wiles. Satan does not fight fair. He will attack and injure you any way he can. He will take advantage of your ignorance. He does not want you to know that you are giving him a foothold in your life if you get involved with horoscopes, tarot cards, palm reading, mediums, or video games with occult elements. He wants you to think that sins like gossip, complaining, and pride are small and insignificant, instead of serious issues. If you are involved in these things, you need to repent, renounce these works of Satan, and burn any physical items such as a Ouija board. What does Jesus, our commander, tell us about our enemy? In John eight forty four, Jesus tells the Jewish people who are listening to him in the temple courtyard about the devil, and Jesus says, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding for there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies so we see that the devil is a murderer he wants people to die in fact he wants you to die he's a liar he's a deceiver who has no truth in him he's opposed to the truth and he's the father of lies he spawns lies that others tell for him and he has many agents in our world today His lies, if we believe them, can destroy our health, our relationships, our lives, and can keep us separated from God. Because Satan is a liar, we should expect that his wiles will often involve deception. Our problem is that Satan is deceptive. He's the ultimate guerrilla fighter. The conventional army wears uniforms and carries flags and banners, so you have no trouble identifying who they are and who they fight for. But a guerrilla fighter does not wear identifying items. He seeks to blend in with innocent civilians so that you do not know where he is or when he will next attack. He is not easy to identify. So we must sometimes be very wise and discerning to see Satan's attacks. As we will see in a few minutes, we must know the truth well in order to discern Satan's lies. Proclaiming the truth exposes his lies. When Jesus was asked about the end of the age and many of us feel like we are nearing the end of the age the first thing he said was take heed that no one deceives you. Matthew 24.4 We live in an era of great deception and spiritual discernment is essential. An entire message could be preached on the strategy and wiles of the devil and the need for discernment. Our third step In overcoming in the spiritual battle is we must be aware of our enemy and that is told to us in verse 12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places our enemy is the devil and evil spirits who obey him Paul's words describing these wicked spirits are very similar to the words that he used in chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, when he told us that Jesus ranks far above these spirits. I've just been talking about Satan, so this point might seem a little redundant to you, but there is a reason why we need to be clear about who is our enemy. Satan often attacks us through the words or actions of other people. Our natural reaction is to see those people as enemies who must be resisted or overcome. So Paul reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, other human beings. God wants to rescue people who are still in rebellion against him and draw them into his family. If we treat those people as though they are our enemies, then they are likely not being shown the invitation to join God's family. We must remember that our enemy is the devil and the ranks of fallen angels who obey him. The human beings who may be the devil's pawns and slaves are not our enemy, even though they may attack us and harm us physically. So 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The devil is not looking to just scare you, but to separate you from God. These evil spirits have no authority over us if we have repented of our sinful pride and submitted to the authority of Jesus, but they can still attack us, and they will try to deceive us into thinking that they still have authority over us. But Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and we need to stand in his authority. So we have seen that First of all, we must be strong in the Lord. Secondly, we must be prepared for attacks. And thirdly, we must be aware of our enemy. And now, fourth, we must be equipped for the battle. God has provided the equipment we need for this battle, but we must act to take advantage of this equipment. As I mentioned before, in verse 11, we are instructed to put on the whole armor of God. And in verse 13 we are told to take up the whole armor of God. God provides the armor, but we have to take it and put it on. There are seven pieces of equipment or or weapons that are listed for us. I will show you images of a Roman soldier's armor, but you should realize that the clothing, armor, and weapons of a Roman soldier were not nearly so identical in appearance as the gear of modern soldiers. There can be many variations in the appearance of authentic equipment. In other words, their uniforms were not so uniform. And we should remember that these military items are metaphors, so the essence of the teaching is in the spiritual quality being detected and not in the piece of armor. So, the first piece of armor that is given to us in verse 14 is the belt of truth. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. We immediately think of a belt as something that girds our waist, but what kind of belt do you envision? This was a strong leather belt that could be several inches wide, or 10 centimeters for you younger people, to support the abdominal muscles. Attached to the front of the belt were thick leather straps or bronze plates called tassets that hung down, kind of like an in an apron shape, to provide protection to the soldier's groin. During battle, the belt held the breastplate in its proper place by being attached to it. And the belt also carried several crucial items including a dagger and the soldier's sword, which we will talk about in a few minutes. The lesson I draw from this analogy is that our protection starts with the truth, and the truth must encircle us. Satan seeks to obscure, challenge, deny, or distort the truth of what God has revealed we put on the belt of truth by learning the truths of Scripture. This is why daily Bible reading is important, because we need reminding regularly. So we can read and study the Bible, listen to biblical preaching, read good theological books, memorize and meditate on Scripture. And parents, you can help your children begin doing this when they are quite young, even at age two or three. For our children, when they were young, We bought a spiral-bound booklet with blank pages. On each page, we wrote a verse that we wanted the children to learn. We chose short verses, or just a portion of a verse, that contained an important truth. With our kids watching and giving advice, we would draw a picture to illustrate that verse, or multiple pictures. Now, this was not fine art. Our people were stick figures, mostly. And then we would repeat that verse several times. In one or two cases, we made the verse into a simple little song. The important thing was that our children learned biblical truth and had fun doing it. Our daughter Lisa is now doing the same thing with her young children and the two images on the screen that you've seen are from the verses book that they are making. As a church family, we can support one another in this battle by discussing biblical truths with one another and small groups are a great setting to do this in. I hope you are a part of a small group. Then we overcome Satan's lies by telling ourselves the truth that God has revealed. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Satan says there are many ways to find God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Satan says, the Bible is the writing of many fallible man and cannot be trusted but second peter 1 2 says for prophecy never came by the will of man but holy men of god spoke as they were moved by the holy spirit and jesus said in his prayer to the heavenly father thy word is truth those references are second peter 1 2 and john seventeen seventeen. so do you trust and firmly hold to the truth of god's word Truth is the first part of our spiritual defense, and it is rooted in God. The second piece of armor God has given us is the breastplate of righteousness, which is mentioned in the second part of verse 14. The breastplate is an essential piece of armor because it protects the vital organs, including the heart and lungs. God tells us in Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. In Isaiah 59, 16, and 17, the breastplate of righteousness is described as part of God's own armor as he battles evil and injustice. It says, Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. We'll discuss the helmet of salvation later but for now let's focus on the breastplate of righteousness. Where do we get the righteousness that is an essential piece of protection for us? How can we protect ourselves when Satan accuses us of committing some sin? The Bible says this about the human race in Romans 3. There is none righteous no not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. You and I in ourselves have no righteousness to protect us but God's righteousness is available to us as a gift from him 2nd Corinthians 5 21 tells us for he which is referring to God the Father made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him in Jesus we can become the righteousness of God Jesus voluntarily took our sins on himself and died on the cross to pay the penalty that our sins deserved. Speaking of Jesus, 1 Peter 2.24 says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. And in 1 John 1, nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you repented of your sins, asked God to forgive you, and surrendered your life to him? That is how we put on the breastplate of righteousness. By repenting of our sins, asking God to forgive us, and surrendering our life to him. Paul wrote this letter to Christians in Ephesus. He made that clear in the very first verse. So that he knew that they had taken these steps and had put on the breastplate of righteousness. Have you if not you may do so today the third piece of equipment in the spiritual warfare of the gospel verse 15 says having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace so what do you put on your feet well the footwear of a soldier is very important because in Paul's era a soldier spent much more time marching than he did fighting His footwear had to protect his feet from the effects of long walks and give him good traction. Sore feet are a major handicap to a soldier, so his feet had to be protected. Now the upper part of a soldier's footwear, a Roman soldier's footwear, looks to us like a sandal, which doesn't seem very sturdy. But the lower part was like a boot. It had a thick sole with multiple layers of leather and metal studs, protruded on the other underside of the sole. Those studs gave the soldier good traction in dirt and were also something of a weapon if he had the chance to stomp on a fallen enemy. Now, I'll admit, I am perplexed by a part of this verse. If the verse said, having shod your feet with the gospel of peace, I would understand that. But the verse has a few extra words, and it says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And I'm not sure I understand the significance of those words the preparation of. So one of the questions for discussion in your small groups is about this phrase and please let me know if you have ideas that will help my understanding. But I'll give you one person's uh, opinion on it. Commentator Max Turner makes this interpretation. Good footwear makes a soldier prepared for an enemy's attack by giving him a good foothold so he is not driven backward. In the same way our understanding of the gospel of peace will enable us to withstand Satan's attack. This commentator likes the revised English Bible translation of this verse which says, let the shoes on your feet be the gospel of peace to give you firm footing. The gospel gives us peace with God as Paul states in Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Taking that gospel to others is certainly part of spiritual warfare and accepting that gospel ourselves is how we put on the the boots of the gospel. The fourth piece of the armor is the shield of faith. Verse 16 says, Above all, taking the shield of faith which which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. This can also be translated, taking the shield, which is faith. Now, why does Paul say, above all? What would make this really important? Perhaps because the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11:6 that without faith it is impossible to please God. Now, Roman shields were made of wood, which means there are almost no surviving examples of them today. Historians have to look to statues for ideas on the appearance of the ancient Roman shields. Being made of wood meant that an enemy might find it advantageous to attack with flaming arrows. If the arrow stuck in the wood of the shield, the flame might ignite a fire in the shield and become a danger to the soldier holding it. Flaming arrows are meant to not only hurt you at the point of impact, but to continue to hurt you as their fire burns. But Paul tells us that this faith shield is able to put out those fires. Has your faith been tested? Are you trusting God now primarily because your life is smooth and comfortable? Do you still trust in the scriptural promises of God when things beyond your control go wrong? When you unexpectedly lose your job? When you are treated unjustly? When major illness or unexpected death strikes your family. Satan will find painful, fiery ways to tempt you to things like anger, bitterness, divisiveness, envy, fear, greed, hatred, laziness, lust, pride, and unbelief in God. Just as it had to be firmly gripped by a soldier all through a battle... So we must firmly hold on to faith in God at all times to overcome temptations in our spiritual battles. And the picture on the screen now shows you that when soldiers used their shields together, they had an exceptionally strong defense. And we must do the same as the spiritual family of God. 1 John 5.4 tells us, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith overcomes temptations from both the world and the devil. The fifth piece piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. In verse 17 it says, And take the helmet of salvation. This can also be translated, Take the helmet which is salvation. We are following God's example in Isaiah 59, 17 that I read earlier. For God put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. We put on the helmet of salvation the same way we put on the breastplate of righteousness, by accepting Jesus Christ as our savior from sin and acknowledging that he is Lord of our life. The helmet covers our head, which is critical to our life. I had never thought of this before. I've prepared this message, but we have five physical senses and four of these, sight, smell, taste, and are done only by our head. Our head is also essential in our thinking processes, and spiritual battles often take place in the mind. Romans 12, two tells us that after we dedicate ourselves to God, we must be, quote, transformed by the renewing of your mind, unquote. So even after we accept Christ as our Savior, there is still a transforming process in our mind that needs to take place. Do you think about what you think about? Let me say that again. Do you think about what you think about? What things do you ponder deeply or meditate on? We should follow the instruction of Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. If there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. It's very easy in this world to let our minds spend far too much time on things that are unwholesome and impure. And so this is what we are to think about, the the good things, that which has virtue and is praiseworthy. Because we are spiritual beings, We can interact with other spiritual beings. This often happens in the form of thoughts. This can be very positive as God communicates his thoughts to us or brings to our mind a verse of scripture. But Satan can also send us his thoughts. So not every thought that pops into your mind is your thought. Some thoughts originate with Satan, not with you. But he would like you to think that it was your thought and so you should act on it. As we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. An important part of the spiritual battle is learning to take every thought captive. When an improper thought first enters our mind, we must capture it and subject it to God's control. We can reject or renounce it, Immediately, and sometimes when I'm by myself, I will do that right out loud. I'll say, "I reject that thought," and then replace it with an appropriate truth from God's word. And God's word is our next piece of armor. Verse 17 says, "Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God." A soldier's sword, sung on, sorry, a soldier's sword hung on his belt when he did not need it. And paul relates both the belt and the sword to truth the sword can be both a defensive protection and an offensive weapon for attack but in roman military tactics it was primarily a weapon of attack and that is why it was a fairly short sword if you compare it to swords from other uh, empires and other eras hebrews 4:12 tells us about the word of god for the word of god is living and powerful And sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When we use the sword of the Spirit, we use in battle the truth that we have absorbed when we put on the belt of truth. Remember that we put on the belt of truth by learning God's truth. And now when we use the sword of the Spirit, we are putting that truth to use. A great example for us is how Jesus used the Word of God to overcome the temptations Satan gave him, as recorded in Matthew chapter 4, the first 11 verses. Three times Satan tempted Jesus to sin, and each time Jesus resisted that temptation by quoting scripture from the Old Testament. We could say that Jesus had on his belt of truth, and he used the sword of the Spirit, If we had time to look at these temptations, we would see that other items of spiritual armor are used there as well. I find it interesting that eight times in the book of Matthew, Jesus says it is written as he quotes from the Old Testament. So if he could quote from the Old Testament, can we? And we have the advantage of the New Testament as well. But we've got to learn it in order to quote it. So now we have reached the end of verse 17, which is the end of the passage assigned to me. However, we have not reached the end of the sentence. Now if you have an NIV, you will see a period at the end of verse 17. But many English translations end the sentence in verse 18, and several of them go till the end of verse 20. In the original Greek text, there are no punctuation marks but many scholars think that the sentence in verse 17 continues to the end of verse 20. Well, I'm not going to go that far, but let's read verses 17 and 18. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. I think there is one more weapon for spiritual warfare, And I will mention it only briefly, since we're going into verse 18, which is supposed to be part of next Sunday's sermon. That weapon is prayer. Prayer is an essential weapon in spiritual warfare. And when we pray in Jesus' name, we are exercising the authority that he has and that he has delegated to us if we are under his authority. But we need to remember, a higher authority doesn't give you any authority if you disobey him. So it's essential that we are under his authority you will notice that paul does not equate prayer to any piece of a roman soldier's equipment there could be a couple reasons for this first and i think most importantly there is a difference between prayer and the first six weapons of warfare that we looked at think about jesus jesus christ is the first six things to us he is our belt of truth our breastplate of righteousness the gospel and our faith shield. He is our salvation and he is the Word of God. However, on the subject of prayer, Jesus has opened the way for us to have access to the Heavenly Father, but we must do the praying. Secondly, perhaps Paul does not equate prayer with a Roman soldier's equipment because there was no equivalent in that era. I suggest that to a modern soldier, there is an equivalent piece of equipment today, the radio. Or young people, you can think satellite phone with encrypted communication. The modern soldier can use his radio to call for help. He can ask his superior officer for artillery support or air support. Send in the paratroopers, send helicopter gunships, send in the Air Force. A Roman soldier had no chance for any of that. Through prayer we have access to God himself. We can ask for help in suffering, for relief in trials, for comfort in distress, and for the removal of obstacles to God's kingdom. We can pray for our own needs and we can pray for the needs of others because we are together in the battle. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. With that, I'm going to leave the subject of prayer for next Sunday's preacher, but I will give you a book recommendation. In the last couple of years, I've read this book and reread many parts of it. It's called Praying. It's written by J.I. Packer and Carolyn Nystrom, and the subtitle to the book is Finding Our Way Through Duty to Delight. And there's a lot of good things in that book. So with these seven things we are equipped for the battle, we can be aware of our enemy and prepared for his attacks, and we can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That is an overview of how we win in the spiritual battle. The conclusion, friends, and the good news is that as Christians we are on the winning side in this spiritual battle. Jesus has already defeated sin, death, and the devil. And I'll close with three verses. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Romans 16.20 And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And 1 Corinthians 15.57 But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.